This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. All right. I just sat down and suddenly I feel like Billy Barty. Someone, <laughs> my nose is barely above the top of the table. Someone switched chairs in here. And <laughs> uh, Billy Barty. Now there's a reference for you kids who are uh, of a certain age. Anyway. Uh, I want, I've mentioned this a couple of times, I know, but, um, I, uh, I want to mention it again. That's the, the new theme song that you just heard, and it was composed by Jeff Eden, uh, at Studio 8. He also composed the new second hour theme, and, uh, I just thought it was time that this show, this is, uh, probably 10 years now, this program, uh, has run, uh, on various radio stations across the city, and... From day one, I've always used the Leonard Cohen uh, a song, Everybody Knows, with the, uh, the clip from uh, Network. And in the second hour, I've always used the uh, George Harrison song, Brainwashed, with another clip from Network. I just thought it was time, high time, the show had a, a fresh coat of paint. I'm retaining those songs. They will be, uh, they'll remain part of the show, and those clips will work those in from time to time. But uh, our, our new theme uh, is courtesy of... Jeff Eden at Studio 8. And, uh, boy, oh, boy, I should have checked this out beforehand. I know that, oh, here we are. Uh, those, the, the, the first hour theme and the second hour theme are now available uh, for download and sale, if you'd like a copy, uh, from Studio 8. Just log on to www.studio8.ca. And it's the number 8, numero 8 www.studio8.ca and again uh, thanks to Jeff Eden uh, for that wonderful theme song uh, that is the official theme song for The Conspiracy Show how are you? Welcome to the August 17th August April 17th edition and uh, we're going to get uh, we've got a, a, an action packed program as they say lined up for you and we'll get to that in just a moment a quick heads up in the second hour I'm going to welcome a British writer uh, to talk about his theories regarding the gray aliens. Nigel Kerner will join us uh, from near Oxford in England, where it will be about four or five in the morning. 
So God bless them for staying up late or getting up early or whatever the case may be. But we'll talk about the great alien conspiracy. And in just a few moments, we'll welcome Paul Zimmerman. How timely is this with um, the um, situation in Japan and the uh, Fukushima nuclear plant there? He's the author of A Primer in the Art of Deception, The Cult of Nuclearists, Uranium Weapons, and Fraudulent Science. Uh, we'll find out, um, you know, should we be worried about uh, what's going on over there? Has it been overplayed, under, or underestimated? He'll, he'll tell us. But first, uh, coming up on the 23rd of April at Conspiracy Culture, 1696 Queen Street West here in Toronto near Roncesvalles, a very special evening and uh, a presentation on uh, the UFO phenomenon. And here to tell us more is our dear friend from Zeland Communications, is Victor Vigiani. Victor, Victor, welcome. Hello, hello. Yes, hello. you are on the air. It works. I am. The microphone. Okay. <laughs> uh, I am here. Okay, that's okay. great. So tell us what's going on on the 23rd of April, Conspiracy Culture. Well, what we're going to do, Patrick White has uh, graciously opened the doors to the uh, uh, Conspiracy Culture store, uh, 1696 Queen Street, as you mentioned, at 7.15 on Saturday, September the 23rd. And we'll be talking about... Um, in a presentation, uh, media mendacity uh, regarding the UFO issue. And I guess the evening title, uh, How Well Are We Being Lied To About the UFO ET Reality, is the cornerstone of the presentation. And we're going to be looking at how big media in concert, hand in glove with uh, government, is halting, stopping, and pretty much putting... Um, uh, the kibosh on any open discourse about the UFO reality in a, in a real sense. And uh, there's lots of information out there, lots of information that people have really not looked at before. Uh, why not? Uh, why is this information uh, only privy to some people? Is the, uh, the huge dump of information onto the Internet with UFO files and so on just a cover-up and a, and a smoke screen uh, to perpetuate the cover-up? Uh, although they look like they're being open, is it really and truly an openness or just another form of mendacity? So we're going to be spending a couple of hours that evening, and um, beginning at 7.15, and I would encourage people to call the store. Uh, I don't know if we have a number. We do have a number, 416-916-1696. If they want to talk to Patrick about purchasing a ticket or coming to the door, they're five bucks, uh, just to kind of uh, get us through the evening. And we hope that as many people come out uh, as possible because we have a lot to share. Now, will this be a PowerPoint uh, presentation, slideshow? Yeah, uh, PowerPoint, basically, yeah. I've uh, done a similar presentation um, at the University of Toronto uh, two and a half years ago. I did uh, th three presentations to the University of Toronto in a similar vein, uh, although we're taking, uh, taking a little bit of a different twist on it this time and including more information about the media and the way, uh, for example, a person like Walter Cronkite was hoodwinked into doing something um, by the CIA on CBS way back when about the UFO cover-up just to whet people's uh, appetites for that. And we're also going to include a challenge to the current Minister of National Defense, um, the Honorable Peter McKay, a challenge to him to come forward and acknowledge the fact that NORAD does, in fact, scramble jets to chase UFOs. And I've been in communication with the minister on this issue, and he refuses to admit in his communications back to me that, in fact, jets, in fact, are scrambled. So it's going to be another part of the evening also, in addition to some information about Congressman King 
that we've sent uh, information to. He's the chairman of the Homeland National Security Committee in the House of Representatives. He also has this information about the shutdown of nuclear weapons in in Montana and throughout the United States. Uh, we feel this is a national security issue that he's dodging and sitting on information that we have uh, that put in his possession. Saturday, April the 23rd, 1696 Queen Street West. That's the uh, that's conspiracy culture uh, near Roncesvalles. And, uh, of course, our good friends Patrick and Kadena operate the uh, the book DVD store. I'm going to be in attendance. Can't wait. Give us the time. 7.15 to 9.15. It could go later. All right. We'll see you then, and uh, we'll see you uh, not only there on Saturday, but uh, here on the 24th, our Easter Sunday show. We'll be talking with Paula Harris and Dr. Michael Sala and Peter Davenport. Uh, We'll convene our our UFO panel. Terrific. Looking forward to it, and thanks very much for the support. All right. Thank you, Victor. Good night. Good night. All right. Uh, Let us move on to uh, other matters. And uh, we're going to work in uh, Paul Zimmerman here. He's an author, researcher, to discuss how the field of radiation protection has been heavily infiltrated and compromised by those with what he calls a vested interest in ensuring the proliferation of nuclear and radiological weapons and commercial nuclear reactors. He is the author of A Primer in the Art of Deception, The Cult of Nuclearists, Uranium Weapons, and Fraudulent Science. Paul Zimmerman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Very good. I'm glad to be here. Uh, now, this, uh, the, the timing, obviously, very important uh, with uh, the, the situation in uh, Japan. And uh, we had, of course, the uh, Fukushima uh, nuclear power plant disabled after the, uh, the tsunami and earthquake on March 11th. Uh, and your book came out in 2008, uh, if, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Uh, it was in August 2009. 2009. Ah, I yeah. see. Okay. There's so many... There's, I don't know where to begin because there's just a massive confusion uh, uh, out there. Um, first of all, when we hear things like, in the media reports, nuclear catastrophe, uh, meltdown, it's, it's hard for those of us who haven't studied uh, uh, this uh, to, to really understand or gauge the seriousness of uh, uh, what's at play. What, what is a nuclear meltdown, first of all? Well, um, a meltdown basically is when uh, uh, the fuel of a nuclear reactor overheats, usually because of an interruption to the cooling of the material. And uh, uh, given sufficient heat, the fuel, um, uh, the casing, the zirconium casing begins to melt, and the fuel pellets begin to um, come closer together, and you get um, um, a criticality event that even though the reactor is turned off, you've got uh, spontaneous fission happening, which is, has been recorded or reported in some of the reactors since the accident. All right. Now, when we compare what happened at uh, Chernobyl uh, to what's happening in Fukushima, give, give me a, uh, paint me a picture here. Uh, compare the two. Well, the, the Chernobyl accident was as bad as it was because um, the... Um, the moderator for the nuclear reaction was graphite, which started burning. And so the whole reactor, after the initial exposure, uh, explosion, there was this tremendous fire, and it vented radioactive material into the air. And there's a great controversy to this day as to how much of the core actually escaped into the atmosphere. It was vented miles into the atmosphere, and then blown uh, all over Europe, and then eventually around the world. 
where it was uh, contaminating the environment. In Fukushima, um, there wasn't, uh, at least um, initially, that concern that there would be that much spreading of radioactivity. But there was one of those reactors that did explode, and on top of the a reactor was a, um, a pool for spent nuclear fuel. And though it hasn't been addressed uh, uh, openly in the media, by looking into pictures of the destroyed reactor, there's very good evidence that a lot of that spent nuclear fuel was vaporized and vented into the atmosphere. So you have an uh, analogous situation uh, between Fukushima and Chernobyl, but it's unlikely that the material was uh, vented as high and thus might not spread as far as what happened in Chernobyl. And also you've got the Pacific Ocean, which uh, so far the prevailing winds have been uh, toward the east, and so you don't have a large population area um, where that uh, uh, material is being uh, dispersed. Paul Zimmerman is uh, with us, author of A Primer in the Art of Deception, The Cult of Nuclearists, Uranium Weapons, and Fraudulent Science. I mean, on the one hand, we, have, uh, we hear from people that... Uh, uh, you know, are, are saying that the the alarm bells are ringing here. This is a, a catastrophic events. Uh, food supplies uh, are at risk. Uh, um, we're, we're being told that the the radiation from Fukushima is no longer negligible in in Europe. Uh, we're hearing that low levels of ionizing radiation uh, can cause harm, and that's something you know that we were led to believe was not true earlier. Uh, we're, we're, we heard about a radioactive cesium cloud that was forecast over California back in April the 12th. And then on the other hand, we, we, we hear people that say, you know what, if, if, if this is as bad as it gets, it's not that bad if you consider you know, how many people are, uh, have been uh, killed, uh, injured uh, um, through the production of coal for energy, or, or uh, you know, we look at the disasters uh, um, related to uh, pr- the petroleum industry in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska, etc. We talk about hydroelectric power and how many people die when dams burst, etc., etc. Where do you where do you come in on this, Paul? What do we need to know about nuclear power, and what should we what should we be worried about, and what should we not be worried about? Um, nuclear power is safe as long as the radioactive material is kept encased and separated from life. The problem is when it escapes into the environment and into the field of life. As in terms of the fallout in North America at this point, if the reports that one gets, uh, which are sporadic, uh, on the Internet, in the media, are accurate, there's really very little risk to people in living in North America at this point in history. But Japanese are talking about it might be up to three months before they be, or longer before they begin covering that reactor, those reactors. And if material continues to spread, then airborne radioactivity might cause a hazard in North America. Now, the one uh, area that might be of concern is for uh, pregnant women, that um, uh, very low doses of internal radioactivity, uh, internal emitters, radioactive atoms that are drawn into the human body, uh, either inhaled or ingested in food, can be detrimental to the development of uh, fetuses, particularly in the first trimester. Now, doses are very low, 
in uh, the food supply in North America at this point. But at the same time, uh, why take any chances in terms of uh, there is concern of elevated levels of iodine in the, in, in the milk supply in certain areas of the country. There's a possibility of contamination on uh, produce and fruit. But now at this point, um, that radioactivity is not something that's been absorbed into the plant while the fruit is growing. Any radioactivity would be deposited on the surface. So a good washing of the material would uh, diminish the amount of radioactivity that one takes into their body if there was anything of any concern on uh, the produce. All right, listen, we'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, uh, we'll continue to uh, delve into the uh, nuclear situation in uh, Japan, and also we'll get uh, a sense from you about the uh, the, the dangers of uh, even low levels of ionizing radiation, and maybe even, uh, I think, an, a definition of ionizing radiation uh, would be uh, appropriate. We, have, we hear about uh, cesium, and we hear about iodine. We'll get you to walk us through that as well. Paul Zimmerman, author of A Primer and the Art of Deception, The Cult of Nuclearists, Uranium Weapons, and Fraudulent Science. If you have questions and comments, the phone lines are now amazing available to you at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, 866-740-4740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. The Gray Alien Conspiracy coming up at midnight with Nigel Kerner. Right now we're talking about the nuclear deception. Author Paul Zimmerman is my guest. What do we mean by ionizing radiation versus non-ionizing radiation, Paul? Um... Basically, ionizing radiation is uh, um, either electromagnetic radiation, either X-ray or gamma rays impinging on the body from the outside, or possibly released in the inside of the body when uh, radioactive atoms decay, that have sufficient energy to break apart uh, chemical bonds. So basically, you've got uh, a molecule and a photon of uh, electromagnetic energy interacts with it, and that molecule breaks apart. Put very simply, what radiation does to the human body is it dissolves the molecular structure of the body. The more radiation you absorb into your body, the more uh, molecular, the, the very sophisticated molecular organization that constitutes a human life begins to be disrupted. And eventually, uh, enough uh, molecular damage occurs that the body falls ill. Well, we're just getting a, um, a fairly recent report from the National Academy's National Research Council in the U.S. that says, The scientific research base shows there is no threshold of exposure below which low levels of ionizing radiation can be demonstrated to be harmless or beneficial. Uh, in other words, a preponderance of scientific evidence shows even low doses of ionizing radiation, such as gamma rays and x-rays, are likely to pose some risk of adverse health effects. 
Now, I, I mean, is this, are we, is this accepted? Is this, is this idea being promulgated by those people that are actually setting the standards for uh, levels of, safe levels of radiation? Well, you see, there's, there's, it's a very complicated issue. I just read that article before, uh, your, um, uh, before we started this interview. Um, first of all, they admit that there's no safe dose, that regardless of how small the dosage, there is a small risk. But it's only a small risk for a very small portion of the, the whole uh, population that's exposed. So it's not like everybody's at risk from low doses of radiation because they're talking about the population effects. And so within a large population, a smaller number of people, a small number of people, perhaps will um, uh, contract the cancer um, from low-dose exposure. So they, they admit that, but the likelihood and the frequency is so small that it's considered insignificant compared to other causes of cancer. Now, the thing that's interesting about that article in the, on your website, and this is take goes to the heart of my book, is that all the examples they give of uh, radiation exposure is in terms of external exposure. They talk about um, gamma exposure from um, from the detonation of the nuclear weapons at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where the populations of those cities were exposed to a barrage of, of gamma rays at the moment that the um, uh, bomb detonated. And it's very similar to when you get a, uh, an X-ray, that this invisible energy penetrated into their bodies at that moment in time. And there's other examples in that article, all talking about external exposure, either from medical procedures or from um, um, background radiation. But the thing that they don't talk about, and this is the secret, is they don't talk, talk about internal contamination. It's always put in terms of external exposure. But now in an accident such as Chernobyl, or what we're seeing now at Fukushima, the hazard to the population is from the atoms escaping from the core of those breached reactors that are being taken into the bodies of people either directly or via a contamination of the food supply. And it's the internal contamination that is the, the hazard and low doses of internal contamination. But that whole um, uh, area is brushed aside by these uh, uh, pronouncements of hazard. It's always put in terms of external exposure. Now, the disaster of choice for understanding how radiation affects human beings is the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which I mentioned earlier was an instantaneous barrage of, of uh, gamma rays at the moment of detonation. The radiation protection community believes that that event can describe all types of exposure regardless of how small. They just mathematically abstract from uh, the high dose that those people receive down to the smallest doses. Once again, mathematical ex uh, uh, extrapolation. The thing that's most curious, and this is where I will challenge the radiation protection agencies, 
is they totally ignore, at least in the West and in Europe, the effects of Chernobyl. Now, what was Chernobyl? Chernobyl was an entirely different kind of disaster from Hiroshima and Nagasaki in that it was internal contamination that um, individual atoms or hot particles from that core of the Chernobyl reactor was spread all over Europe and was taken into the bodies of people living in the areas where uh, that fallout uh, settled in the environment. And it's very low doses of radiation which have been shown to cause um, uh, uh, infant leukemia, uh, birth defects, and uh, 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 in some areas high rates rates of uh, cancer. But this is not what you're reading in those reports. You're not reading about the low-dose effects from internal contamination. And that's where the major cover-up comes. Paul Zimmerman is uh, my guest, author of A Primer in the Art of Deception, The Cult of Nuclearists, Uranium Weapons, and the Fraudulent Science. Uh, you, you mention in the book that uh, when you're talking about these radiation protection agencies, Chapter 6, The Most Heinous Crime in History, The Betrayal of Mankind by the Radiation Protection Agencies. Is this... Um, is this ignorance? Is this deception? Well, that's the name of the book, right? Is a primer in the art of deception. I mean, th- these people are, are knowingly lying to the public about the biological effects of low-level radiation. Uh, no. I don't think that the majority of health physicists, health physicists are those people that are trained to protect the rest of us from radiation exposure. And I think most of them are... Um, are well-intentioned and are just uh, spokesmen for their science. But I think back in the 50s, during the era of above-ground above weapon testing, when people started to get very agitated in the late 50s, that um, there was the beginning of protests uh, against uh, above-ground weapon testing, that they were finding uh, elevated uh, levels of strontium in uh, children, uh, in babies' teeth, and uh, elevated levels of iodine-131 in the milk supply. And somehow, in order to um, uh, try to save face or protect development of nuclear weapons, I think subtle distortions were entered into the mathematics in order to put the best light, put the best face on what was going on. And I think that uh, my thesis of my book is that that... um, distortion has been maintained in the science because basically today what you have is an antiquated science of radiation effects which was developed during the Manhattan Project and uh, um, pretty well uh, finished as a system by 1953. So the current uh, theory, the the current methodology for determining what's a safe dose of radiation was in place before the discovery of DNA, which is astounding. And yet, from then until now, the science has not been sufficiently adjusted to the whole revolution that's happened in biology in the second half of the 20th century. Radiation effects can be studied in, in ways that couldn't possibly have been imagined by a Manhattan Project 
physicists. But yet, that whole methodology is ignored, and the world is supposed to understand radiation from the theory of radiation effects that was developed in the 1950s. You know, uh, uh, Paul, we'll take a... We'll take a time out here, but this sounds eerily familiar, uh, this conversation. There was a conversation on this program at the end of February with Dr. Magda Havis talking about the dangers of EMF. And the threshold, the, the safety guidelines, for example, for microwaves, was as long as it didn't burn the skin uh, after an exposure of 30 seconds, it was deemed to be safe. Uh, meanwhile, in Russia and the, the rest of the Eastern Bloc uh, and countries, they realized uh, that there was another uh, a, a danger, and that was at the uh, molecular or cellular level, uh, the, the DNA, uh, and the the idea that uh, the microwaves can be safe uh, as long as it's not burning the skin after 30 seconds. I mean, that's, I think, a very interesting parallel to what you're talking about. Uh, we'll uh, get to uh, more of this when The Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Paul Zimmerman is with us, author of A Primer in the Art of Deception, and we're talking about nuclear deception. Um, Let's go back to Chernobyl, because we had, um, you know, various seemingly reputable groups with sharp, sharply contrasting reports on the morbidity and mortalities resulting from that radiation catastrophe back in 1986. You had the World Health Organization in 2005. They issued a report saying only 43 human deaths uh, directly uh, can be attributed directly to the Chernobyl disaster and then estimated an additional 4,000 fatal cancers. Then in 2009, you had the New York Academy of Sciences and their report, a very different conclusion. They estimate the number of deaths attributable to the Chernobyl meltdown at about 980,000. How could these two groups be so different? And, and what, in your estimation, or who, in your estimation, is closer to the truth? Um, I believe that that publication of the Russians is much more accurate than what was uh, published by the WHO and the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency. Is this the Richard Sarah show? What? Oh, oh, we have a caller. Hang on. So, uh, one second, caller. We'll, we'll, we'll get to you in a moment. Uh, uh, um, so uh, let me just thing. clarify, uh, Paul. You're saying that the New York Academy of Science report uh, estimating the number of deaths at 980,000 is more accurate. That's correct. And just for your audience, uh, that uh, document is available for free on uh, um, Google Books. It's um, Chernobyl, uh, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People in the Environment. And um, it makes a very good argument for the kind of uh, disease that happened throughout the contaminated territories of Russia, the Ukraine, and Belarus. uh, The problem is that the International Atomic uh, Energy Agency is uh, organized to promote the peaceful use of atomic energy. And once again, in order to um, fulfill that agenda, they have to limit the perception of hazard from internal contamination, 
which was the type of contamination that resulted from Chernobyl. So before the Chernobyl Forum was published, which is the one that you uh, mentioned uh, in uh, 2004 or 2005, there was a meeting in Kiev on the 15th anniversary of Chernobyl uh, in 2001, where many eminent scientists of uh, the Russian Academy of Science were in attendance. And um, uh, Abel Gonzalez from the International Atomic Energy Agency got up and said, what do we know about Chernobyl? As far as we can tell, there were only 31 deaths, and there was almost a riot broke out. I have it on video, and you can see it, that the Russians were incensed that somebody could come to a scientific meeting and uh, put out such obvious political propaganda that downplaying the tragedy and the catastrophe that uh, spread throughout the contaminated areas. And um, the Chernobyl Forum was basically the same statistics, that only 47 deaths, 9,000 cancers, and that was as, as far as it went. But once again, it's damage control trying to um, bypass or distract attention from the hazards of low levels of internal contamination. Now, I would like to get back to one thing that you mentioned earlier in terms of the catastrophe at Fukushima that because of this culture that's developed over the last half century of downplaying the hazards of internal contamination, people are not being given accurate information in uh, Japan. And as a result of that, and I think it's at this point it's becoming criminal activity, because the evacuation zone of 20 kilometers has not been nearly sufficient to protect the population, that the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, recently published some uh, measurements that they took that out to 78 kilometers from the um, uh, destroyed reactors, readings are ranging upwards of 900,000 uh, disintegrations per second per cubic or per square meter. Now, in Chernobyl, there was an evacuation zone, and the evacuation zone there was defined as 500,000 uh, becquerels, disintegrations per second, per square meter. And here you have out to 78. Remember, the, uh, the exclusion zone or the evacuation zone in Japan has only been 20 kilometers. But here, out to 78 kilometers, you've got radiation readings that are almost twice as high as the area that was evacuated uh, around Chernobyl. So you have people living today in areas where they shouldn't be living. And it's the fault of the Japanese government and the Japanese radiation protection agencies, and in turn, the whole international system of trying to downplay radiation as a, a public relations for the nuclear industry. As a result, what's happening is people are going to be made ill. You're going to have increased birth defects. You're going to have increased uh, birthing problems, stillbirth, spontaneous abortions. You're going to have increases of childhood leukemia, and you're going to have increases of cancer in the Japanese population because the information being given to the people is insufficient to protect themselves. Well, if Chernobyl, if the morbidity, uh, if, if the, the stats are 980,000 deaths, can you extrapolate what, what, what will be the, the legacy uh, of Fukushima in terms of morbidity? 
Well, I, uh, the only thing that I've read so far, and it's just the very tentative, is um, uh, Chris Busby of the European Committee of Radiation Risk uh, estimated that there would be between 200,000 and 400,000 additional cancers from what we know today of the contamination uh, in Japan. But that's just a very rough estimate, and um, it's, we won't know for decades. And the thing about Chernobyl and what we see from this, uh, the Chernobyl Forum, is that it's very easy for uh, epidemiological studies to be um, distorted or totally controlled. So we might get a, a, a false picture of what happened in Japan, just like what they've been trying to do, of give a false picture of what happened at Chernobyl. So uh, it's going to be very difficult to wring the truth out of what happened because there's so much effort to downplay the hazards of radiation. And sitting in the background of all this is nuclear weapons and nuclear war, that uh, downplaying the hazards of radiation is somehow trying to implant the idea in people's head, well, nuclear bunker busters or small tactical nuclear weapons, they're not going to be hazardous to health. And it's just that the uh, it's protection of the weapons as much as it is the industry. Well, yeah, we haven't even uh, touched on depleted uranium, which of course was a huge uh, uh, topic uh, during the uh, the first and second Gulf Wars, and uh, uh, we could touch on that in a moment. But let me get to the phones uh, here and say hello to Daryl, who's in Johnstown, New York. Daryl, you're on the Conspiracy Show. Say hello to Paul Zimmerman. Good uh, good evening, Paul Zimmerman, and you too, my friend. Uh, you picked a serious subject, uh, which has me very concerned. Uh, nuclear energy, I feel uh, the human race really doesn't have enough handle on it. We haven't studied enough, and it's become a dollar sign. And uh, what bothers me about that is the waste. I know here in this country, uh, toxic waste will either dump it somewhere or dump it and not tell you about it or pay someone else to take it. And someone told me that France, of course, is uh, is pretty much powered on nuclear energy, and they also said they found a way of neutralizing the waste. Uh, this knowledge I don't have, and if that is a truism, please tell me, because uh, I wonder what France really does with all their nuclear waste, whether you're pro or con to nuclear energy. Waste is a major problem. Please uh, uh, speak about this particular subject, and I'll listen to affair, and thank you both very much. Thank you, Daryl, in Johnstown, New York. Paul? Um... I can't speak off the top of my head for uh, whatever exotic uh, process the French are claiming they have for neutralizing uh, radioactive waste. Um, we certainly saw what happened in Japan. To the, uh, they hadn't solved their waste problem yet, so they were storing uh, spent nuclear fuel within the reactor buildings. And uh, when that one reactor blew up, the fuel was vented into the atmosphere. And uh, this is going to be a problem, I think, uh, continually, because how can human beings uh, uh, guard uh, this nuclear waste for uh, millennium or even longer? How do we know that whatever solution we have in terms of uh, trying to bury it in a safe way that it's not going to escape into the environment over geological time is going to be successful? What's the it, what isotope is the culprit? Is it iodine one thirty one, cesium one thirty seven, or some other isotope? Uh, I didn't hear your question. What what is the the the, the serious uh, culprit in terms of the uh, the 
I guess you call them radionuclides. Which isotope? Is it iodine-131, cesium-137? No, they're all serious. The problem is that uh, for, in terms of uh, radioactive waste storage, it's the, uh, the, the ones with the long half-life. So your plutonium and your transuranics and uh, uh, your uranium, which is going to be uh, uh, radioactive for uh, uh, billions of years. This may be a silly question, but sometimes you have to ask the silly question. Uh, is there another way of producing nuclear power without uranium? Um, once again, there's, uh, there's, there's talk about thorium reactors, but um, I couldn't give you off the top of my head uh, um, how they would uh, uh, work in uh, comparison. Uh, Keith is in New York. I don't know if that's upstate or New York City proper. Keith, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. As uh, the British would say, across the pond from you in Rochester. Ah, all right, Rochester checking in. Great. The home of uh, Richard C. Dolan. Okay, Keith, go I ahead. I wanted to know if any studies have been done to show if life can build up an immune system to radioactivity. Is there any possibility that a super species of life could actually feed off of radioactivity and even prosper from it? Um. That's hard to imagine in, in, as long as that life is made up of the same uh, molecular structure that human beings are made of, because ionizing radiation breaks apart the molecules that our bodies are built from. So uh, there's nothing that can protect the integrity of the molecular structure of the human body from the energy that impinges upon it from uh, decaying uh, radioactive Adams. Thanks for the call, Keith. Uh, Paul, what about the x-ray scanners in airports? Are they non-ionizing or ionizing? Uh, supposedly they're non-ionizing, but there have been studies that uh, say that uh, um, through um, various mechanisms that it's, they still have a, a, the capacity of affecting or even uh, un, um, unraveling uh, DNA. All right, we'll take another time out. Come back with Paul Zimmerman here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, Here's two more numbers, 416-360-0740, or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Getting all kinds of uh, emails, uh, wondering about the, uh, the status of the conspiracy television show on Vision, and of course we have just wrapped up uh, season one. The first or the final episode uh, aired April the first. Hopefully, uh, you were able to catch that and uh, and most of the uh, of the episodes. Uh, it will repeat at some point, um, but we just haven't uh, heard uh, yet from Vision uh, in terms of the schedule. And as soon as we know when you can catch season one on Vision, and I'm sure it'll run through the summer at some point, we will let you know uh, probably. You can, uh, we'll send out a, a Twitter announcement or um, look for an announcement on the website richardserrett.com or theconspiracyshow.com. Back to uh, Paul Zimmerman, author of A Primer and the Art of Deception, The Cult of Nuclearists, Uranium Weapons, and Fraudulent uh, Science. Uh, and in the book, Paul, you give a, um, uh, a wonderful illustration 
that pinpoints the inadequacy of the current practices for calculating the, uh, the, the, the health effects of low-level uh, radiation, or what you call eternal internal emitters. It, it involves a Colt 45 and a football stadium. Can you, can you explain that? Um, well, that was an example that uh, Chris Busby, once again, of the European uh, Committee of Radiation Risk, uh, he uh, attempted to show the hazard of internal contamination by this example, that if you have a crazed gunman going into a, um, uh, a football stadium and shooting off uh, six uh, bullets, um, the way the radiation protection agencies would um, uh, evaluate that situation is that they would take the energy from those six bullets and they would average it over the 10,000 people in the stadium and say, well, you see, those bullets didn't hurt anybody because all it was was a little tap of energy. That's how uh, um, that kind of exposure is treated. The energy of, of low levels of radiation are averaged over a whole organ or a whole group of cells. But what happens is that that crazed guzman kills six people all the energy from those six bullets are not averaged over the whole stadium. They're absorbed by six individuals who are murdered. And so it's an uh, uh, entirely different uh, interpretation of the event in terms of how, if you look at it as discrete bullets affecting individual cells, or if you average the energy over large masses. And that, in a nutshell, is the controversy of the, this whole um, controversy between external exposure and internal contamination. Let's talk a little bit about uh, depleted uranium. First of all, what is depleted uranium? Um, depleted uranium is pr pretty well a misnomer. That um, uh, Depleted uranium is uranium that's been uh, uh, cycled through a nuclear reactor in order to... Um, 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 enrich uh, uh, uranium. What's happening is that 0.7%, uh, 7 tenths of 1% of uranium that goes into a reactor is uranium-235, where the other almost 99% is uranium-238. Now, those people who want to make uh, fuel for nuclear reactors or want uh, uh, fuel to power a, a nuclear detonation need large quantities of uranium 238 or 235 because that uh, uh, sustains a chain reaction. So they're separating out the 235 from the 238. So what happens is depleted uranium is uranium that has been reduced from 0.7% uranium 235 to about 0.3 or 4 percent, 235. So it's only been depleted by a little bit of its uranium 235 content, but 99 percent of it is uranium 238. And what's the potential long-term health effects of, of exposure? What are we talking about? Well, once again, it all depends on who you talk to. The um, radiation protection agencies say that the radioactivity emitted by uranium is uh, so low that there's no adverse health effects. 
so they say there's no hazard. It's quite all right to scatter it all over uh, other people's homelands. 1,000 to 2,000 tons, apparently. What? Uh, 1,000 to 2,000 tons, by some estimates, in Iraq. Uh, Probably more than that. Okay. Yeah. The problem is that they ignore modern research. As a result of the uh, use of depleted uranium in uh, the first Iraq war, it spurred a scientific investigation of uranium all over the world. Research groups turned to uranium to try to get a better understanding of it. And what's been discovered is either because of uh, the chemical effects of uranium or the radioactivity of uranium or the two synergistically working together, it's been discovered repeatedly that this kind of exposure, internal exposure once again, is cytogenic, it's lethal to cells, it's genotoxic, it disrupts the integrity of the DNA molecule, it's mutagenic, it can uh, cause mutations within DNA, it's also teratogenic, meaning it can affect fetal development, and it's a neurotoxin. So once again, when the Radiation Protection Committees, and there were reports written by um, uh, uh, the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency and the Royal Society, and the European Parliament and the European Union and uh, um, numerous um, departments in the United States testifying to the safety of uranium weapons. But what happens is they ignored the whole knowledge base which has developed in the last 10 years in their statements. They're not addressing the current science when they say that uranium, depleted uranium weapons are safe. I, I mentioned 1,000 to 2,000 tons. Let me uh, correct myself. The, the, that was during only one three-week period in, uh, in 2003 in Iraq. One to 2,000 tons in a three-week period. Deleted uranium uh, munitions. Uh, what is the connection, do you think, between depleted uranium and uh, Gulf War Syndrome? Um, I think that more investigation seems to be necessary. There are definite signs that uh, uranium exposure can be either a a factor or a cofactor in the symptomatology which is being called Gulf War Syndrome. But a lot of it, when you go through the literature, and and this is one of the the lengthy chapters in my book, uh, uh, the powers that be stay away from that any research which does show a link between uh, uranium and the type of uh, illnesses that uh, GIs were uh, manifesting. All right, we can work in a quick call here from Indiana. Doug, you're on The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Yeah, Mr. Zimmerman and Richard, uh, there's some cases where the abolishment of nuclear weapons on the face of the earth may not benefit mankind. Let's say in the case of a approaching asteroid or something and a heavy soviet missile that might be you know eliminated through salt treaties and everything could possibly save mankind with a you know jar this asteroid out of hitting the earth's surface and saving mankind there has anybody really thought about uh... redesigning a high megatonnage weapon somewhere around twenty to fifty megatons and recreating it so it has a low radioactive output but still having the same heat and blast damage and detonating it 
in, in between an oncoming uh, tidal wave in, let's say, a major city like Los Angeles or Honolulu, and with this amount of uh, energy developed in the ocean, let's say 2,000 meters below the surface, what water would be evaporated by such a massive explosion could sit there and seriously lessen the impact of uh, the oncoming tidal wave on the city, which would be devastated anyway. Doug, thank you for the call. Paul? Um, I would like to find some compassionate use for nuclear weapons, some humanitarian use, but the uh, scenarios that uh, you uh, portrayed are so unlikely compared to the very real threat of uh, either limited or total thermonuclear war breaking out in the near future that uh, I think that that must it would be a more concern that disarmament would be safer than the holding on to these weapons for uh, as long as they're here somebody's eventually going to use them so uh, the book, again, uh, Paul, is A Primer in the Art of Deception, The Cult of Nuclearists, Uranium Weapons, and Fraudulent Science. The website, www.du-deceptions, the DU for depleted uranium, I'm guessing? Uh, uh, yes. Okay, www.du-deceptions.com. Uh, anything uh, that we didn't mention that you'd like to, that you feel is, that is important to mention, Paul, at this point? Um, uh the one thing I did want to mention, and I'm not trying to sell books, is that on that website, uh, there is, uh, under the, uh, the link of excerpts, there is the entire chapter of my book, which almost is a third of the book, about 230 pages, called The Betrayal of Mankind by the Radiation Protection Agencies. And I've decided to give that away freely because it's such an important topic. It's not a conspiracy-oriented uh, work. It's a book. It's the chapter is a book of science. When I wrote it, I wrote it as a reporter, in order to uh, uh, for my detractors. I'd like to say right off the bat that I'm not a trained physicist. I'm not a trained health physicist. That I'm self-educated. But in the process of writing that chapter, what I did was serve as a reporter, reporting on a number of people with very respected credentials who have criticized the current approach to radiation safety. And what I attempted to do in that chapter, which I encourage everybody to download and read, is to show that uh, what is being passed on, uh, passed as radiation safety, is not effectively serving humanity and protecting us from the hazards of radiation exposure. All right, Paul, listen, um, obviously we'll continue to watch uh, the situation uh, at the Fukushima plant uh, with intense uh, interest, and um, uh, perhaps uh, we can call on you again in the near future to, uh, uh, to delve further into this. Thank you very much. Paul Zimmerman, author of A Primer in the Art of Deception, The Cult of Nuclearists, Uranium Weapons, and Fraudulent Science. And when we come back, we'll delve into the gray alien conspiracy. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
Facebook Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Who's abducting humans? Why are they here? What are they? How do they come to be? And what do they want from us? My next guest may have finally solved the mysteries of UFOs. He's a screenwriter and an author. His latest book is Gray Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls, the Conspiracy to Genetically Tamper with Humanity. Joining us on the line from Oxford, England, is Nigel Kerner. Nigel, how are you? Hi, this is Nigel Kerner here talking to you from England. <laughs> it's good to have you aboard, and uh, you're a terrific sport for being up so uh, late or early, as it were. Uh, we're yeah, about, uh, I think, four or five hours uh, difference. Uh, and you're yeah. uh, just on the border of Oxford and Northampton. Uh, I'm sorry, Northamptonshire. Yeah. Northamptonshire. Ox- Ox- yeah, it's called Oxfordshire and Northamptonshire. In fact, it's Oxford and Northampton, really, basically. The problem is you see Oxford's actual town as well. So, uh, you know, people get confused. <laughs> well, it's uh, terrific to have you on The Conspiracy Show. Let's just launch right into this. this is a fascinating book, Gray Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls, The Conspiracy to Genetically Tamper with Humanity. Nigel, let's start with a definition. What is a gray alien? Well, I wish I knew in in perfect detail what these these things are, but they seem to be, from all accounts, and, and after studying it over 30 years, I've come to the conclusion that they most definitely are a kind of roboidic, bio-roboidic type of entity. Uh, they are, in fact, machines. They're not. They, the, the crucial difference is that they don't have a life force as we do a natural life force. And these things are kind of probes, I think, that are sent out by advanced civilizations, you know, rather like the, the things we do now, sending out things to out there into space to look at asteroids and so on. And these things are very, very sophisticated <clears throat> uh, packages of intelligence um, that are, in a sense, very much um, uh, uh, the kind of um, <clears throat> entity that is parodying life form, but it's not really a natural life form. It's a synthetic type of thing which has, a, has no sense, if you like, of the kind of, of thinkability that we have with conscience and emotion and stuff like that. They just are there to accumulate knowledge, I think, on an additive uh, basis, that it's on a binary system and so on. And this particular type of thing is, is I think, standard for the universe out there. We've just discovered, after all, that you know, the, the, the universe is, seems to be teeming with, with planets like ours. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, you know, our technology is, what, 100, 100, 200 years old, really, in, in terms of anything advanced and so forth. And you can imagine that out there there must be many, many hundreds of thousands of these things with, with civilizations much technologically much older than, than us. And I think that this is the kind of uh, uh, situation that happens everywhere. It's not a, a rare phenomenon. So the greys to me are, if you like, something that, and I, I want to make clear why I say this later on, but they are something that we should never, ever attempt to do because in it is a built-in paradox, which is extremely dangerous to natural life forms like ours, quite simply because we can't talk the same language finally. 
and I'll, I'll explain that as we go along. Well, I mean, we, are, we are tampering. We are opening that Pandora's box. We have opened that Pandora's box, uh, if you will, uh, our experiments, ongoing experiments with artificial intelligence. And uh, I think we know where that could lead. Uh, but let me ask you specifically again about the greys. Uh, who sent them or what sent them and approximately when? Well, there, there, there seems to be several um, uh, trains of thought on this. And the most interesting one to me is this concept that we have that the universe, when it began, uh, was the explosion that actually went out. It's very much like uh, the parody I would use, the analogy I would use, dropping a pebble in a pond and you see the ripples swelling outwards. Imagine that multidimensionally rather than a two-dimensional thing you, you see when you do that. But these ripples, each one of them, is an expression of a situation of force. And each ripple has its own measure of enforcedness, of tightness of space and time. And I think that as the ripples go out and form and coalesce and cool after the, after the explosion, you do get a situation where these packing of force mechanisms get isolated from one another. And within each of them is a frame of reference in which things uh, manifest, if you like. And I think that this is the next frame up. These things come from the next frame up. And I believe that uh, maybe, and this is, this is again connecting up the dots after so many years of research, trying to find out whether this is something like, you know, you travel from one star to another. I don't think this is possible with the Einstein, Einsteinian kind of forbiddance of the speed of light business. I think what happens is that if there's a huge explosion, if there's a huge um, uh, gravitational uh, expression on the Earth, say a volcano going off, or a tremendous earthquake, or whatever happens, the concussion that that provides can actually intermingle briefly with that next level of force up. And these things leak into ours because they are slightly greater in their force impact than ours. So they kind of tumble into our universe and get trapped here. And when that happens, of course, that then makes them, if you like, uh, have, have a problem in coping with our particular enforced environment as is presented on our particular ring of force, so to speak. And, and, and it's a rather complex thing, but I'm, I'm trying to make this as simple as I can. And I think that's the best way you can explain why they are often seen where there are these big uh, up upheavals, natural upheavals going on um, in, in, in uh, our planet. And I think that's probably uh, the best um, uh, answer to try to, 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 to try to figure out where they actually come from. The problem with saying that they come from a planet in our universe, in our own space-time, um, uh, so to speak, is that you know the nearest star is four light years away. Now, yes, it's if just you're not going practical. Look, you know, it's almost impossible to do this in terms of that speed of light barrier in, ter in any time scale, um, if you like, that, that's reasonable. And I think that, that, that this is the big, big problem here. How do we explain these things in terms of uh, that uh, uh, verification, so to speak, you know? Well, unless they are a... Uh uh, a two or level three type civilization in which they are um, a priori interdimensional because they have, if they've powered the, 
the uh, you know the energy of several suns or a black hole or a wormhole, uh, you know the, the time time and space becomes almost irrelevant. Are you suggesting, Nigel, that they could be interdimensional? I, um, I, dimensional in, in terms of spatial dimensions, no. I think that this is a, a quantum association between um, two levels, intermingling or possibly intermingling levels of, of these rings, uh, this ring-type format that I um, uh, outlined earlier. And this is really the fascinating thing about this. You can talk about black holes, you can talk about all the force verifications within our own rings, so to speak, that all is within that ring. But these things come from the next level upwards. And I think that, I say when I say upwards, I mean downwards in the sense because the ones, that, the, the, the older rings that go out, so to speak, get less and less able to hold this property that's so precious to us and which is the salient demarcation between us and them. And that is that the naturalness of us in terms of the life force against their mechan mechanism for driving their being, which is not a living property, but a machine electromagnetic, much more, uh, <clears throat> uh, shall we say, a, a, a less uh, a powerful um, uh, expression of, of the way that these things can persist within each particular uh, domain if you like, um, in our universe. And, and that, that is the crucial thing, to make this difference between what is living and natural and what is the next level up in, in the expression of, uh, of any type of being. So it's not within all we see in our universe, and our universe is one shell, one of the ripples, if you like, and the next one up has a whole new ballgame. And that is, is, is what we have to try to understand, why these things are the way they are and, 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 they, and the way they behave. And the only thing that explains that is that this is a kind of machine-mindedness being the next frame-up, the plus frame-up. And, of course, there will be a concurrent one below us, too, which is an even grander scale of life and livingness and, 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 and the properties of, of knowing and so on. So it's, 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 it's a really deeply philosophical connecting mechanism between all these different ripples and frames. I'm hearing you. Nigel Kerner is author of Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls. And uh, if you followed along, uh, essentially, in a nutshell, what Nigel has just said is, boy, is SETI barking up the wrong tree. Let's come back in a moment. More of my conversation with Nigel on Grey Aliens, the Harvesting of Souls, the Conspiracy to Genetically Tamper with Humanity, here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Nigel Kerner is with us here on The Conspiracy Show, talking about his brand new book, Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls. Uh, Nigel, the, uh, the idea that uh, these are essentially 
these grays, our, our robots, uh, artificial intelligence. Why, what, why are they here? What is their mission? Are they, are they, are they harvesting genetic material? What, what are they doing here? Well, that's a $64,000 question, and it's something, it goes back to the, the, the whole, my whole experience of this, this entire thing. It started with an innocent question my son asked me when he was 12 years old, Dad, are UFOs real? And of course, as a writer, and I, I wrote rather stuffy, stuffy uh, intellectual books and that kind of thing, and never really <laughs> considered this subject. I thought it was with the fairies, rather frivolous, and I course came at it very uh, um, sarcastically and, and, and uh, uh, I'll say um, um, I didn't quite want to give him the answer that he was looking for because I mean he was a young kid and he read Buck Rogers and all that kind of business and Star Wars or whatever and I wanted to say to him that this is up there with the fairies this is Mickey Mouse kind of stuff you do better not to look at this whatever except that my sons are pretty well hitched up poncho upstairs, so to speak, and he was likely to come back at me one day and say, look, Dad, you are looking a bit of a fool here. And so rather than risk that with my 12-year-old son, I decided to, to take a rain check and say, look, give me some time. I'll have a look at this and I'll come and tell you because I really do not know what, what this is all about. So I started with, a, to be honest, as a real skeptical about it all uh, and, and, and being rather skeptical rather about it all. And, and the point was that as I looked into it, and open the Pandora's box, as you put it, Richard, I began to see that this is really no, uh, uh, in no way frivolous, in no way is it rubbish. This is probably the greatest hidden secret the world has ever known to date. And I began to see that not only was it revealing things that hit at my sacred, uh, uh, you know, assumptions from the past and so forth, as to our reality and our, 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 uh, the verification of our being as we know it, so to speak. It was something that was way beyond that and was beginning to go into various disciplines to do with all types of existential considerations. And that really was the big deal for me. As I began to look at the window, uh, I began to see that there, were, there was a lot more to our existence than, than had previously uh, been supposed in the kind of way that people looked at the whole thing and so on. And I was always uh, the kind of mind that looked at things laterally. So I really wanted uh, to, to get this really shipshape, as we have a phrase here in England called shipshape in Bristol fashion. And we really wanted to, to, to I wanted to look at what was the evidence that was coming up in some kind of way that wasn't conventional because conventional answers weren't really providing uh, any kind of concept that was uh, rational. And so when I began to look at this slightly out of kilter, so to speak, the whole thing began to gel. And I, I began to see that not only was it to do with physics, it was to do with philosophy, and it was to do with religion. So you, I want to explain the, the, the title of the book. It might seem completely bizarre that the title associates UFOs and souls and biology and all the rest of it in, in one amalgam. But you know, when you really do look at this, and I really went into this extremely deeply, as I say, before I wrote the books, I had done over 30 years of research, concerted research into it. And when I really began to put the thing together, I began to, to look at my own existential platform in, in terms of how I had received it in my, in my life thus far, and it completely overturned it. 
And that is really the, the whole point about it. So to answer your questions, you know, what, what do they want from us? I think the next frame up, when it comes into ours, sees the expansive freedom that the form of us has in this particular frame. And of course, a machine, when it comes in contact with artificial intelligence, with another relatively intelligent species, they notice what obviously is different, and that in order to survive within our own frame, if they're trapped here, they would obviously want to know all the factors that in involve you know, their existence in this place because they would have to adapt to it. And they would then find a life form that naturally lives, and that means the process of birth automatically and so on. The point about that is we come up against an incredible thing called the second law of thermodynamics. The slot, as I call it. And this, <laughs> is the, this business is a big deal because what it is doing is slowly unraveling and taking us all apart as we move along. All things and, tend towards and, decay. Absolutely. You, you got it in one. And this business means that when that Big Bang occurred and all those frames, those circles, those ripples I explained at the beginning happen with time, you've got this business of, it's called entropy, entropy locked in different formats and phases within each of these ripples. And so each one will then present to the other with a completely different dominion of space-time and tightness of space and neutron arrangements and so forth. And now the point about that is that we've then got to see how one interfacing with the other will work and what the differences are between each. And I think for the first time on our planet, something happened that joined the two interfaces together. And the whole point is that, you know, they are trying to find the best way to survive amongst us, and we, not even acknowledging them, as you know, people just dismiss this as a kind of frivolous thing, UFOs or whatever. We don't even allow the mainstream to actually look at this seriously and see, could there be a big problem here? Is this thing very real? And if it is real, why shouldn't the whole world know about it? Because it affects every single person on, on the face of the earth if, if, in its consequences and so on. And so what we then have, it seems to me, to do is to look at those things that each of the two systems uh, are coincident with and those that they are not. And the great difference is that entropy will take us out in a particular um, force uh, paradigm, and entropy will do the same to them in their own force paradigm. Now, if these things are different as we go with the ripples going out, the ones furthest out, so to speak, will have entropy logically working much stronger there, which means they decay faster. So they build within their own capacities or whatever prompts that force paradigm to produce these things. These things will build and they will decay. They come into ours by an accident or whatever, and they see that we can last a little longer. And we have a mechanism that makes us last longer. It's called birth. And if you look at this in a religious sense, if reincarnation is true, this thing then gives us a tenure, so to speak, that might well be limitless. And if the next frame up has a definite end, 
much faster than ours. You can expect them to say, I want a bit of this. So maybe they are checking into us in order to see how they could adapt to being like us such that they could continue longer than they would normally do. And that's how we get to this, this mechanism of soul, another religious concept, so to speak. Here you are, I'm trying to tie up this idea of UFOs, a mechanical me mechanism, with a ephemeral religious one. And so for me, I had to look at what this soul business might be. And the soul, to me, quite simply, is that line of connection that goes to the beginning of the universe when that first moment of the Big Bang occurred to now. That line is in each and every single one of us because we are here, you know, we have dad, mom, we've got granddad, grandma, and so on. And we go right the way back to that beginning point in a line. And that beginning point is in us now, so to speak, individually. And the line of information that derives from that for each individual being, to me, is simply a soul. It's not something mystical and magical. It is that simple line of acquired um, knowledge that each of us discreetly has and is therefore like a fingerprint. Now, these things too would have in that sense a beginning in that, but their, their beginning is because they're the next ripple up out of our ripples, so to speak. So their beginning would be the end of our ripple, so to speak. So, and we would consequently have the same thing going back in, in, this, in this concatenate way all the way back to that point in the Big Bang. And of course, if we come from the point in the Big Bang, it means that there's obviously an implication there that we also came from what was before the Big Bang. So then I had to conceive of some paradigm that explained what that before might be. And so you see what, I'm, what I mean about connecting the dots, Richard. It's a very, very simple, you know, kind of uh, almost arithmetical uh, par paradigm I'm looking at here. And this thing then gradually comes together in this enormous consequence tying all the various things, all the various puzzles we have in the world today together in one single quantum. Then we get to the system of how, where does psychology begin? What is this incredible thing that we have in terms of our ability to feel uh, uh, conscience, to feel uh, sadness, to feel the emotional quantum that we have? The next ripple up the being that naturally happens there has not got this facility. So if the two things meet, then you get the, the business of one trying to adapt to the other with the best of each, so to speak. And I think that's exactly what these things are trying to do. And that's why they've lingered longer, because they want to know how best they can piggyback on the best qualities uh, that we, in livingness, so to speak, have. On this. So there are artificial created things in the sense when you compare it to us after the Big Bang, we trace our existence to before the Big Bang. And that's essentially what I'm trying to say here. And so when you put that kind of idea together, you have to stop and think a great deal and say, goodness, if this is true, it puts a lot of the mysteries that we've tried to, to get at and, and, and get an answer for in some kind of context we've never seen it before. 
Absolutely. Nigel, uh, stay put. When we come back, let's talk about the uh, the role of gray aliens in our creation a story, in the, uh, in the Genesis account, uh, in the Bible, and also uh, if we go back to the, the book of Enoch, for example, and uh, reports of fallen angels commingling with the daughters of men. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that, in fact, an ancient version of the modern abduction phenomena? Let's uh, continue when we return with uh, Nigel Kerner, author of Gray Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Nigel Kerner stays with us. Gray Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls, the conspiracy to genetically tamper with humanity. The Genesis account of creation, Nigel, were the greys interwoven in that story? Absolutely. No question in my mind from all the research I've done. And I think the whole thing happened, I think, are Adam. We've had several Adam points, if you see what I'm trying to say, where this adaptation took place. And I think the first one happened about three, uh, two, 220,000 years ago uh, when uh, a primitive form of hominid was taken um, by these things, these pods that, that we call um, 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 greys, uh, this, this type of being. And in looking at this particular uh, hominid type, they... And, their, uh, and seeing the difference in their intelligence against this harmony that hasn't probably invented fire, for all we know, these things found that they could still bring forth their progeny. They could still continue. They could still last longer than they were lasting. So they really wanted a, me a mechanism, as I said before, of continuity, basically. And so looking at these things, they began to see that maybe if they altered these things in some kind of way, they could then fit their own complex into it in some kind of way. And that is really what I think these people, these things uh, have been at all these hundreds of thousands of years. And I think it's extremely difficult, you see, to get a, a new kind of version of each thing because you've got to get it in there. You've got to get it old enough to produce progeny and you've got to do that over and over again. And so they set about inserting their synthetic mechanisms, and it may be a kind of synthetic DNA. You know, Richard, we are now actually making uh, synth uh, synthetic from, from, actual, uh, from actual biological structures. We are making um, uh, mechanisms and inserting it into our bodies that can actually produce changes and, and, and very significant changes um, um, biologically. And so these things may have some formulary, some mechanism, in fact, I'm sure they have, where they splice in to the gene tree in the chromosomes and so on, sequences that will allow us to then bring ourselves up to where their intelligence, quote, their I IQs can actually marry in with some kind of um, 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 uh, result that, that was suitable to them. And it's very important to understand that this whole business was not done as a favor to us as a species, but in their interests and their interests alone. And as with any machine, they did this in a cold, relentless way. And we found that suddenly, up to 200,000 years ago, here we were, for three, four million years 
previous to that, the same type of being under the law of entropy, going down, um, devolution, devolution is the theme, not evolution, going down all the time, and then these things come in, and they splice in whatever they have in their own terms of reference into ours, and we then suddenly get a brain three times or four times the size of what was there, and then this brain not only comes about, but a pelvic girdle to admit this brain happens almost concurrently. Now, you know, biology says all of this comes through fortuitous mutation. Can't even say it. Fortuitous mutation. Well, I'll tell you what. Einstein disagreed, and all the great thinkers have disagreed, but the fact that the numbers do not match. If this was going to happen accidentally, it would take far longer than the universe exists, if you see what I'm trying to say. Yes, so yes. something happened in a spurt. Two big things happened at the same time. And that makes me extremely suspicious. And to me, that sounds very much like some kind of genetic engineering. And I think that's when the whole thing of the, hu of the human each, so to speak, actually started to blossom. So we came out of Africa within one individual, and that individual then produced progeny, which they then worked on further and so forth, until we've got our present types of human beings and so forth. And I think that is the big deal that science will not accept. And I tell you what, I'm willing to say that one day my grandchildren will see this as normal. <laughs> well, it, it certainly makes sense when you look at, uh, let's say, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the Tigris Valley 5,000 years ago. All of a sudden you have this civilization springing forth from uh, Sumer when the rest of the the known world are still living in 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 mud huts and Absolutely. yet in sumer you have uh, all of a sudden uh, the cultivation of 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 plants you have uh, you have libraries right. you have uh, written language of course absolutely uh, that explains um, a, a whole lot now yes absolutely and and the, the strange thing though the, the the interesting thing is we talk about you know the bible if you take it literally to be true if you see what i mean 6000 we're 6000 years old if you see what i'm trying to say and the problem with that is simply this here you are a chap going up a mountainside taking a walk up a mountain and a bush talks to him and of course if that happened to me i'd think he was god too if you see what i'm trying to say but if it was technology that's easy to understand, if you see what I'm trying to say. So you see what I'm trying? There were different types of Adam, is what I'm trying to say. Each right. one, a new consensus of a species, so to speak. Was the, each was one the, following one after the other. Was the serpent in the Garden of Eden essentially a gray? No, I think, this, I, I think the serpent, really, was the way the greys introduced this technological factorization into being. The funny thing, you know... The serpent looks like a waveform, like a sine wave, doesn't it? And what does a sine wave signify? It signifies some kind of electromagnetic or some kind of technological perspective to me. Right. And an apple, if you take an apple and cut it in half, just take a look at the core of an apple, and you will see the old experiment, I'm sure you've done it at, at school yourself, Richard, where we have these iron filings business and the, and the bar magnets and so forth. And if you look at, if you put iron filings on a bar magnet under a sheet of paper, whatever, you will get a, a wonderful disposition of lines of force which look just like the core of an apple. So I think what's been, what's, what we look there is a figurative explanation of a burgeoning series of technological mechanisms that 
extend the capacity, I think, in, our, in, in their terms of our species to their level. And they are getting close to the point now, I believe, where we are ready for whatever they want the next stage uh, to happen to us. And that's what I want to talk about in terms of, you know, articles I've written, SIM card man, whatever. And that takes us on to a, a big, big deal uh, where unless we find some antidote to what they are proceeding to do, they will make us their own. And we will, each one of us may well, in fact, lose our individuality. An individuality, I've, I've said, that has a scale that can be eternal. And I think the great teachers come in here when they tried to point this out to us. I think they saw this in the past, that there was a danger. And in fact, they derived their knowledge from maybe this kind of accounts of this kind of thing happening elsewhere in the universe. They knew about this and warned us, be very careful when you're dealing with artificial intelligence and things like that that you might happen to come to. And this brings me to an extremely and very interesting point uh, where I make this association uh, kind of work, if you see what, at least it it works to my satisfaction. It may not to many people in the world. Uh, It's a really important association that's mentioned, so we say, in, in, in the Christian vibe. First of all, let me say, I said the Christian Bible, and I I stopped there, but let me say this. I am not religious. I am very, very secular in my outlook as a scientist. I'm soaked in science and so on. But I, too, had to take another look at religion when I saw the associations coming up. And I will make a... I I began to make statements and look at things here that I would never have looked at before. And I'll give you an example of this, if I may. If you look at the Christian um, um, New Testament, there is a very pointed uh, episode in the life of the Christian teacher, um, uh, Jeshua ben Joseph, to give him his Jewish name, and and Jesus Christ, to uh, to give him the Christian name. Um, And here is this situation where something kidnaps this man or abducts this man and takes him somewhere. And it's said in the Bible that he's taken to a high place in the hills of Judea. And whoever took him there seems to have the authority to do anything with him. Now, he is supposed to be the great, the son of God, whatever, and yet there is something far more powerful, obviously, than him to be able to do this. He's taken to this high place, and this individual, this honcho, tells him, now listen, if you do this and you do that, I will give you this and give you that. So, in fact, he is demarcating and commanding the, 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 the Christian uh, prophets uh, that, you know, he, it's conditional that he's there under his conditions, so to speak. And he says to him quite specifically from this high place, he takes him up and shows him the cities of the world. Now, if you look at Judea, and I think this is something all your listeners can do if they want for themselves, if you've got a, 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 a sphere of, of the world, a, a globe, and you look at that area where, with, shall we say, Judea in the center, when you look at it and you try to flatten it in your mind, you're looking, this, you're looking at the sphere, you flatten it in your mind, you will get a two-dimensional kind of aspect to it. And you put Judea in the center. If you go to Judea and look at Judea now topographically, you will not find a place high enough to see any cities of the world except the little towns around that area. However, if you go maybe 50 to 100 miles vertically there, you will see 
all the known and accountable cities of the world at that time. So there is a very clear implication here that somehow this Christian prophet was taken up into space and the individual that did that had command and it seems implied ownership of everything on the earth because he kept saying I will give you this and I will give you that and the funny thing about it is the name of that individual is called Satan and and if you look at the old uh, um, um, ancient texts the meaning of the word Satan was that which fell from the sky now, mm. there is a very, very, very plausible scenario for me to try to explain how you get religion coming into this from UFOs, you know, <laughs> to souls and yes. this connection. Well, you see, I'm trying to make that connection. And, absolutely. And, and, and I hope not, not ne nebulously, you know. Not at all. Not at all. I am, uh, listen, this is something that we've yeah. talked about on, on the program. And it, if we talk about uh, bloodlines... Uh, and we talk, let's go back again to, uh, to Genesis. And actually what I'll do here is I'll take a time out. We'll come back. Let's talk about uh, the progeny of, uh, of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and uh, Cain specifically, who went on this, well, he, he became a, uh, a murderer. Uh, what was going on there in terms of the genetic manipulation of humanity with the greys? Why did the greys create... Cain, if in fact they did. Back with more of my conversation with Nigel Kerner, the author of Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls, right here on AM740 Zoom Radio and The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Nigel Kerner stays with us. This is fascinating, a fascinating uh, conversation and a fascinating book. Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls, The Conspiracy to Genetically Tamper with Humanity. Uh, from the, the biblical standpoint, uh, um, adherence uh, to the faith, uh, look at this conspiracy uh, to tamper with the, the bloodline of da the House of David in order to forestall the second coming of, uh, or in, in order to forestall the coming of the Messiah. Uh, and some see the intervention of fallen angels in that regard, that they they contaminated the gene pool, if you will, uh, by commingling with the daughters of men. This is mentioned in uh, various places, including the, the book of Enoch. Uh, some might see uh, the creation of, uh, of Cain. Uh, some have gone so far as to suggest that uh, the serpent or Satan in the Garden of Eden, commingled with Eve to contaminate the gene pool. Uh, and, and thus uh, we have the murderous Cain uh, brought into existence. Uh, but from the perspective of, uh, from where you're coming from, Nigel, it sounds like if we take uh, Satan and fallen angels out of the equation, replace them with greys, they too are attempting to 
tamper with humanity for their own for their own means. Uh, uh, can, can I just yes. say this? I, yes. I do not think that, that this business about Satan and all these um, mythological individuals uh, by name, I think this is all to do with the greys. I think this is I all understand. to do with this extraterrestrial expression. I think it's far more likely and rational for us to see this as something that is within our own ex, um, sentient ex, experience, so to speak, and not something out there that is uh, mystical and, you know, um, <laughs> you, you know, new age and that kind of thing. I think that this is real stuff that's going on here, that here we are in this universe with all these various types of uh, components and planets, whatever it is that produce things and so forth. And I think this interaction process is what is happening on the Earth, and I think the Earth, this is a natural cascade that has happened to our particular planet. But it's interesting what you say, though, Richard, because this is where it gets really, uh, really kind of, you know, pointed, if I may say so, and that is looking at this business of Cain and Abel. You've got a very interesting thing happening here. There again, they describe this man Cain as with all the qualities, blah, 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 that it took to do the murder. And Abel's a nice, gentle, opposite type. Now, if you want something to survive, if you've conducted genetic uh, experiments and you want something to survive, you'd want the fellow that's a killer that would not mind (laughs) surviving at any cost, so to speak. And so here was some characteristic within an individual that could be bred for the survival of that particular genotype, if you see what I'm trying to say. There is another point here that is very interesting and could spark a lot of controversy, and it bears looking at in in terms of what might happen in the future. You've also got this individual Cain in a different aspect. Apparently the god, the so-called god, says... To these people, I, have, I will punish Cain by marking him, by marking him, I, I, I stress that. And you are not going to touch him. Now, normally, if you punish someone, you want to get rid of that individual because there's a blemish. But there is a preservation order put here on this individual after he has been marked. Now, if this genetic business about these things coming and starting humanity in Africa, and all science points to the beginning of us in Africa, then all the individuals that might have been there would have been very dark-skinned, would have been Africanized, and so forth. However, what would be the thing that would stand out as a mark that would be immediately noticeable? And that would be a different color of skin. Now, I'll tell you why this is relevant. In my research, I discovered, and it's all in the book, I discovered that there is an incredible propensity within each of us that to survive the radiation of the sun. Fair-skinned people are vulnerable and dark-skinned people are protected. I'll tell you why. Within, you know that within the cell there is a nucleus and the nucleus of the cell contains the chromosomes. In other words, the genetic material that writes new things, new people through protein and so on, uh, protein synthesis and so on. Now, what then happens there is that this nucleus is the precious part of the cell in terms of the future. But the nucleus has a membrane around it, a plasma lemma, a membrane. And, you know, in very fair-skinned people, and fair skin means transparent, to ultraviolet light, fair-skinned people have something absent in that nuclear membrane that 
opens it out and allows access into it. And that is granules of melanin, which is the pigment that colors the skin. Melanin absorbs ultraviolet light. Now, if you do genetic engineering in a laboratory, what you use is ultraviolet light to cut and splice DNA and insert new codes in there. Now, I think that these guys with their technology discovered that they couldn't get through the melanin shields of the dark-skinned individuals in Africa and when fortuitously maybe an albinoid African happened and they found that they could get in there, they bred for that. And I believe that that may well have been why they preserved the, the idea of the preservation of cane goes and that cane, in fact, stood for that special breed process that they isolated an individual. Now, what does that mean? That means an awful lot, does it not? Well, it might, it, might, mean, well it, it, it might explain why, as you point out in your book, the vast majority of alien abductees are fair-skinned. That's right. And, and uh, actually, if I may say so... Um, you know, there is a, a, a record here in, in the text that says Cain was sent to the north, the land of Nod. And so I do believe that what they are doing here is breeding a certain kind of human being for their purposes. And if it is for their purposes, Richard, then maybe a warning should go out that the target may well be very fair-skinned people, and for some reason that these fair-skinned people are the ones they are seeking to put their special synthetic DNA codes into. If that's the case, then when, I'm, when my son, <laughs> his, his, his gray eyes look at me, he looks at me, you know, I think to myself, my goodness me, is there a threat to this particular genotype? of humanity. If that's the case, it would be ironic, would it not, that the, the people who have developed all the, you know, the, by and large, technology comes within the, from the lands uh, in the north, so to speak, at least now, and developing in very, very high measure, that, in fact, this technology may well be accelerating because they want us to produce something that they find useful themselves for their purposes, and that something may well include the taking perhaps the taking out of huge, huge uh, numbers of this kind of genotype. And it may well be something that we should watch in terms of a threat to part of our brotherhood of man, so to speak. There is an account, for instance, in the pseudographical book of Enoch, and you mentioned that, I think, in our conversation earlier, indicating that Noah may have been an albino with hair as white as snow and skin as red as a rose. The unusual nature of this child was so marked, it says, that his father, Lamech, was afraid of him. This would lend the whole new meaning to the story of Noah and the Ark as a genetic experiment you know, to take all the animals in the world on board a ship. I ask you, come on now. But if you take their genes, very easily done. You see what mm. I'm trying to say? Indeed. You understand? Indeed. So... All of these things point to some interesting things we ought to look at. I'm, look, I am not saying that these things are true. I really am not claiming they are true. I'm saying they are so coincidental that people really have to look at this business in case this particular thing we, we have at the moment, this phenomenon of these things moving at 50,000 kilometers, turning at right angles, all the rest of it, that astronauts have verified and, and 
and we know are here. Let's face it. We 150 do. million people since 1947 have seen one, Nigel, even if only no, 1% no question, are unexpected. No yeah. What do we do about it, Richard? That's why I, I, I kind of wrote the book as a, as, a, as a lament for my children, basically, not to preach new meanings to the world, whatever. I wanted them to look at this themselves and see where this might lead and so forth, in case there was a salutary threat to part of the brotherhood of man. And the only thing that I, I would like to verify is that if this brotherhood of man is tribalizing, if it is separating, it would be exactly what a genetic engineering experiment would do to protect their own progeny or their own kind of genetic experiment. Hitler, for instance, when in the last war, there's a very, very uh, uh, telling uh, report that there are historical historical accountings there that, that suggest that Hitler may have met one of these hybrids. Uh, and I, I, I'll quote you this now. It's something that Hermann Rauschning, the, 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 the Nazi governor of Danzig, made um, the statement. The new man is living amongst us now. He's here. I will tell you a secret. I have seen the new man. He's intrepid and cruel, and I was afraid of him. It seems that Hitler believed that he had seen an, a member of the Aryan super race, which he believed to originate from the inner earth, a Nordic alien inspiring his blonde, blue-eyed ideal. In referring to the inner earth, could he have been describing the underground and underwater locations where UFO sightings have indicated the possibility that, you know, alien craft are laying in wait, ready perhaps to emerge when the time is right? Now, interesting, don't you think? So, well, it, it, it is. I mean, if I... Sorry, Nigel, if I just uh, I just want to pick up on something yeah. you said there. Yeah. Uh, if uh, the uh, the greys are conducting this genetic experiment with a select uh, uh, race, primarily, the, you know, the fair skin people. And you look at the, as you point out, the, the, the legacy, the, the woeful legacy of, of uh, Western Europeans and their conquests and uh, uh, genocides, etc. Uh, if, if, if that lineage is traced back through the bloodline to Cain, uh, that, that makes sense from that standpoint. Then you, you mentioned Hitler. Uh, did the Greys then... Uh, did the Greys infuse uh, uh, the idea of racism into these groups so that they could protect the experiment from outside intermingling and breeding? That's a very distinct possibility. And obviously I make these points because that possibility dawns very strongly in front of me when I, when I put these, these, these things together. And of course, you know, how do we prove this? If people look away, if people are emotional, supposing there is this kind of epithet that this is going on, Richard, in the world, and we look away saying, no, this is, this, it offends our comfort points, and most of our comfort points are hitched to our eyes, so to speak. But if we don't look, it's not that the threat is not between us as people. We may all be victims of some machine-type thing that comes from another spatial, non-spatial dimension uh, that is tacit in the universe, that is a default mechanism in the universe, and in coincidentally, uh, you know, does these things not just on the earth, but wherever they go. So if they actually, to answer your question, if they actually are 
producing these suitable genetic types, you would expect them in some kind of way to guard that and build in some prohibition within the mind frames of such people so that they themselves would want to guard themselves on behalf of these things that are creating them. Now, and that, so Hitler's, Hitler's decision to exterminate six million Jews, yes. uh, if we look at it from uh, in the context of, again, of the, uh, the gray aliens tampering with uh, yes. our, 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 uh, our DNA, yes. then, the, uh, then Hitler, uh, uh, they were probably the, the, the group that was most alien in, 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 um, in, 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 in genetically. Uh, and the, 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 the Hebraic people, the, the Jews, were the least tampered with, and so they were the greatest threat to the gray alien experiment. Maybe they were the most successfully tampered with, too. And the fact was that these the Jewish people, this magnificent race of people that did have given so much, and I, I'm not Jewish, I have to tell you that I'm a Roman Catholic, but at least they splashed some water on me. I managed to escape all the, <laughs> all the combinations of organization and all that, and I, I don't believe in any of that hunky-dory. But I will tell you this. To me, they are the most gifted and wondrous people, perhaps because they, let's face it, if you walked up a mountainside and the burning bush spoke to you, you would think it was God, would you not? And maybe they accepted all of this. And maybe they are some of the biggest victims of all of this because the Greys found that when you do alter human beings, our capacities, our natural capacities also come out in us. So there's a combination of conscience, of caring and all of that and maybe it was the, the Jewish strain that spotted all this and were clever enough maybe to surmount some of the things that these things were doing to them. And maybe that then produced a, a dangerous invective in the minds of certain people who these people concurrently at the time of the war, shall we say Hitler and his bunch of devils, whatever, uh, were in fact you know, uh, doing what they were doing to these people. And they wanted this particular specially gifted uh, group of people wiped out for that basis. Now, I don't know if this is true. I have to stress this. However, it's a fascinating correlation that I can make. I think there is plausibility to it in terms of the way I've tried to describe the whole thing. Nigel, last question. How do we get out from under this? I mean, if, the, if the, this experiment is continuing through the alien abduction phenomenon, uh, and according to a Roper poll, I believe, that was sponsored by uh, Dr. David Jacobs, uh, who studied this phenomenon, uh, something like 6% of Americans may have been abducted. 6%, 6% of 300 yeah. million. That's, uh, yeah. that's a huge experiment uh, that's being conducted. How do we get out from under this? Well, my, my, my take on this is simply this. If you are an abductee, don't despair. I believe abductees are amongst those whom the greys have problems introducing their program into. They have certain successfully integrated biological lines, and those do not need, uh, and you do not need to pay much attention to the ones that they, they can integrate very well with. But the ones that don't are the ones that you take up and examine. And I think that the abductees are precious, that they, instead of being some victim, of course they suffer a lot. Of course their victimization uh, is implicit in what happens to them. And of course, and we don't realize how much suffering they must have gone through with these terrible, relentless machine-type psychologies that emotion 
emotionally, have no emotions and watch their suffering with no expression, whatever. Now, these people that are taken, therefore, may have a resistance within them. And that points to the saving of our, of our particular species. And that's, the, I could never talk about that in the time left, but that's what I'm trying to say in, in, in book three. What may be our saving? And where do we, we trace the derivations that might point to it, really? So, no genetic interception is powerful enough to cancel our potential scope to choose uh, options freely. As humans, you know, we still have the potential freedom. It is a signature of a soul line of connection that we have to the state of perfect freedom, and that is our saving. And I think that something about us was shown by this beautiful Jew, Jesus Christ, when in a wonderful moment, he glowed brighter than the sun under a shroud and left a burn on, with all his distance-coded information of his body, the most remarkable thing that provides, I think, the greatest uh, indication of how wonderful living human beings can be. And that's for another talk, I think, you know. Well, that's a it's, really it's, fascinating one. <laughs> it is. It is. It's very uh, appropriate, yeah. of course, as we approach uh, Easter. I uh, yeah. have I've studied the Shroud for many years, and yeah. uh, it's, it's a wonderful note to, to end on. Yeah, uh, and but, I think that is, that's the connection between the Greys and the Shroud that has a powerful redemptive, re redemptive uh, association with it. And not just in the Christian context, there are other beings, I believe, that have the same kind of of not quite the same as this incredible thing that, uh, that Christ produced, but there are indications that all other philosophical um, 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 uh, uh, churches and whatever uh, have, a, have similar, uh, if you like, uh, things that they can point to that provide the scale of our, our human uh, capacities. Uh, and that is something that we should not, frown at. That's a, a marvelous thing that it's, it's, it's not a story of uh, a depressing story. It may be a triumphant one in the end. Oh, indeed it is. Gray aliens and the harvesting of souls. And, and this all began with a child's question, uh, the conspiracy to genetically tamper with humanity. Uh, how, how wonderful uh, that, it, you know, a, a, an innocent question from a child would con completely uh, turn your world uh, upside down and uh, by extension ours as well. Uh, but um, I hope no, not. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a good way, in a good way. Uh, Nigel, thank you so much for this. Thank you very much, Richard. Nigel Kerner. I'll be back next week, Sunday, the 24th of April. That's Easter Sunday with a brand new program. I'll speak with Dr. Andrew Silverman, a medical doctor from Oxford, England. He'll weigh in with his thoughts on the most studied artifact in human history, the Shroud of Turin. And what he has to say, I think, will astound you. Also, Victor Vigiani, my old friend, will be with me in studio. He of Zeland Communications News Network. We'll also check in with uh, Peter Davenport, the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, Paula Harris, a UFO journalist, and Dr. Michael Salov, the Exopolitics Institute, to discuss the uh, famous UFO sighting over the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem back in late January, and the remarkable secret FBI files that were recently released uh, detailing exploding UFOs and alien landings. In the meantime, don't be afraid 
There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.